In Spanish, its name means the Meadows. You might know it as the entertainment capital of the world, Lost Wages, or simply Sin City. Of course, I'm talking about fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. On average, 42 million people visit Las Vegas every year, and I'm one of them. I love this city. The sights, the sounds, the shows, the people, the history. I want to share all of it with you. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the best of the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. One of the most popular topics on the podcast is Las Vegas history. People can't seem to get enough of hearing about the colorful and interesting past of their favorite city, as well as the cast of characters who helped to shape it. I've had the pleasure of talking with authors, other podcasters, and historians on a huge variety of subjects, covering everything from the mob's role in creating Las Vegas to deep dives into the history of some of the most iconic Vegas hotels and casinos, and much, much more. I thought it might be fun to hop into my own personal time machine and reshare some of those conversations with you. So, here we go. Enjoy. We begin with episode number 36, The Full Reveal. From the Burlesque Hall of Fame Museum, here's Dustin Wax. Burlesque is really, if we look at the roots of Las Vegas entertainment, it's Lily St. Cyr coming here in the late 40s, early 50s. Uh, and performing a, a sort of traditional style burlesque show at the El Rancho with a, with a, a comic, usually Joey Lewis. And uh, I mentioned the Minskys before. The Minskys were a, a group of four brothers who all ran shows out in New York um, and really shaped modern, you know, Gypsy Rose Lee worked for them. Um, all the big dancers in the, in the sort of 20s and 30s worked for them. And uh, the son of one of them, uh, Harold Minsky, moves out to Las Vegas in 57. He starts the first topless review at the Dunes, and it's really based around the same model of a Minsky burlesque show, although a lot of it's choreographed. It's not necessarily the individual artist doing her thing. It's, you know, uh, an act that they hire someone to sort of fill. And But the whole root of the modern showgirl show uh, comes out of that pretty soon. He's running shows at seven different hotels. Um, and other people are coming in and doing the same kinds of shows, the Lido to Paris and, uh, the, um, uh, Jubilee and all these shows are modeled after that kind of, uh, burlesque inspired show. So yeah, it's really baked in here. And I mean, you talked a little bit about burlesque seeing a, a real resurgence in the nineties, why do you think that is? Where do, where do you think that came from? I, I've seen it in in you know working in radio and working in music and the way people will discover music from the eighties or music from the seventies and all of a sudden you know there's a big resurgence of the Beatles in in two thousand and ten or whatever. Is, is it kind of a situation like that? Was it people looking specifically for something new? What's old is new again. Why do you think that resurgence happened? I think. Um the biggest thing I see is that in the early 90s, you had 
a whole generation of uh, young women who had been raised with feminism, right? Uh, and so they were all raised with the idea that you can be whatever you want to be. There's, you shouldn't. You're going to have a career. You shouldn't feel constrained. Uh, there can be women doctors and women politicians and women CEOs and whatever else. And uh, and yet the society hadn't really changed to catch up with them that much. So they raised with those ideas, but it was still, you know, they were still also told, well, you should probably not weigh more than 110 and you should probably wear a ton of makeup and always be pretty and don't learn a lot of math and whatever else. And so you see a whole bunch of different kinds of ways that women are looking to are looking for identities for themselves in the early 90s, right? You have the Rockabilly revival, you have the roller derby revival, you have uh, the Riot Girl movement um, in punk rock, you have you have all these different kinds of uh, just you know movements and subcultures emerging that are all. Uh, it, to some extent, looking backwards um, at, at previous sort of models, but also trying to modernize those and kind of reconcile them. So they're models of being women and being powerful without being 80s feminist women with the shoulder pads and the, you know, the the sort of uh, man-eater stereotype of, of the 80s. Uh, you know, think of like Baby Boom or whatever, where you have these very powerful women that, that are frightening and very masculine. And so there are models of femininity that are also powerful, um, and uh, and and I think that's a a big part of it is that they're they're sort of trying to play with all these different ideas and all these different ways of being women. And burlesque is one style that's a very hyper exaggerated form of femininity in its heyday, and it's also. Um, you know, more in line with the emerging sort of third wave feminism, sex uh, positive feminism. It's not, you know, if you think of the 70s feminism, there was, you know, like the Society for Cutting Up Men and uh, and by choice lesbianism and so on, where they were really trying to just get away from the idea of sex as, as any part of the identity. And, and you know, by the 90s, they're really trying to find ways to to integrate sex into part of uh, sex and sexuality into part of their uh, personhood. And so I think all those things sort of crystallize for some people around burlesque. Um, burlesque also has this really theatrical element uh, that's very similar to drag where you're just, it's just way over the top. You know, you can put on a giant 12 inch high wig and three inch long eye, uh, eyelashes and, you know, incredible makeup and it's very theatrical. There's glitter and sparkle and whatever. And, and it, it, it creates a, uh, uh, I don't know, like a glam, uh, David Bowie type, you know, way of, of again, playing with gender and playing with your identity and, and creating whole new people out of, or personas out of who you are. Um, and, and this kind of fantasy self. Up next, from episode number 62, Howard Hughes, aviator, innovator, and Las Vegas legend. From the Mob Museum, here's Jeff Schumacher. In 1965, Hughes had sold all his shares in Transworld Airlines, TWA. 
And the amount of his shares, the value of his shares was $546 million, which is a lot of money today. But imagine how much money that was in 1965. Wow. And it was was described at the time as the largest single check that had ever been written to an individual. But, of course, when you have $546 million all of a sudden, who wants a big chunk of that? The the Internal Revenue Service. (laughs) So – Hughes was looking for a, a way to avoid that huge penalty, that huge tax penalty. And he came up with the idea that he would move to Las Vegas, he moved to Nevada, and then he would invest that, a lot of that money into land and, and other uh, properties. That's a way to avoid, to avoid just giving it to the government. So Hughes, in, on, on Thanksgiving of 1966, he came to Las Vegas by train, believe it or not. Uh, you know, the, the great aviator insisted on coming to Las Vegas on a train. And uh, he came in the middle of the night, and the train stopped a little ways outside of Las Vegas, where a van was waiting. And Hughes was transferred from the train to the van, and then he was driven. This is all in secret. People didn't know he was coming. And Hughes arrived at the Desert Inn Hotel on the burgeoning Las Vegas Strip, and moved up into the ninth floor, which was the, the penthouse floor of the Desert Inn. And he's, he, he was in one room, and uh, his aides, his personal aides, were, uh, took up the rest, of the rest of the ninth floor. And some of the stories surrounding Howard Hughes are legendary enough, but the ones specifically involving Las Vegas are, are just crazy. Um, one of the more prevalent ones i guess you could say is is the story of him taking over the desert inn them wanting him to leave and him basically saying uh no <laughs> well that's right you know he so he moves into the uh the the penthouse suite uh of the desert inn he takes up the entire penthouse floor you know the hotels in las vegas are a lot bigger now than they were then uh so nine stories was you know as big as you were going to get but you know, those rooms were valuable. They were very valuable to the Desert Inn because that's where their high rollers would stay when they came to gamble. But Hughes was not a high roller, and Hughes didn't gamble at all. He never left the room. Uh, and his aides were, uh, they were, they weren't gambling much either. They were guys who were very loyal to Hughes, and they were very focused on their jobs. They weren't spending a lot of money in the hotel, the casino. And so Mo, Mo Dalitz, the, uh, the mob boss who ran the Desert Inn, he wanted Hughes out. He never intended that Hughes was going to live there. And so as the end of December is approaching, so remember he came to Las Vegas in, on Thanksgiving of 66, late November. By mid-December, Mo Dalitz is concerned that these high rollers are, who are going to be coming in for New Year's, which is always a big deal here, mm-hmm. uh, he wants rooms for them. So he wants Hughes out. And Hughes doesn't want to leave. Hughes has become very comfortable at the Desert Inn. You know, there had been discussions with him and his uh, right-hand man, Bob Mayhew, about moving into a house in Las Vegas. Uh, But I don't think Hughes was ever very serious about that. By this time of his life, he was pretty well accustomed to living in hotels. So it it gets to reaches a point in December where Mo Dalitz is about ready to send the sheriff in to physically evict Howard Hughes from the DI and uh, Bob Mayhew, uh, that's the right-hand man of Hughes, he makes a call, the pivotal call to 
to try to avoid this conflict. He calls Jimmy Hoffa, Jimmy Hoffa, the uh, Teamsters Union boss, right, and asks him to intercede and allow Hughes, you know, to, and to talk down Modelitz from kicking Hughes out. So Jimmy Hoffa does that. He he uh, makes that call. Modelitz uh, relents and he's going to let Hughes stay. But it's right around this time that Hughes uh, comes up with the idea. Well, if they're going to kick me out of here, why don't I just buy the place and then I can stay. And so Hughes initiate through Mayhew, <clears throat> excuse me, through Mayhew, Hughes initiates um, uh, proceedings to purchase the Desert Inn. And by March of 1967, it was his. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's amazing. I mean, imagine, I can't imagine just having that much money. You know what? I don't want to leave. So screw it. I'm just going to buy this place. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. He stayed there in that suite the rest of the time he was in Las Vegas, about four years total. And so, of course, the Desert Inn didn't do that well while he owned it, in part because <laughs> he had occupied all the good rooms. But right. um, he did own it. And he, he once he bought the Desert Inn, he, and it, when he came to Las Vegas, he had no intention of buying casinos. Uh, but when, once he bought the Desert Inn, it, he decided that these were toys that he would really like to assemble. So he instructed Bob Mayhew to buy more casinos. And they ended up buying the, the Sands and the uh, Frontier and the Silver Slipper and the Castaways and the Landmark. They also bought, bought Harold's Club uh, up in Reno. Now, there's a story that I've heard about him, the reason behind his purchase of the Silver Slipper the story that I had read was that he bought it because he didn't like where the sign was. The, the blinking light of the sign kept him awake. Was that true? So that I don't believe is true. <laughs> that story has been, that story has traveled far and wide though. So the silver slipper had a very interesting sign. It was a slipper. Literally it was a sign in the shape of a slipper and it rotated and there were lights on it and it annoyed a lot of people, uh, but there's no evidence that it annoyed Howard Hughes. And one of the reasons for that was that he, all of his windows of his suite were all uh, covered. They were covered. Uh, he blacked out the room. Gotcha. So the likelihood that a light was bothering him is unlikely. Uh, what did in fact happen is Mayhew was looking for hotels to buy and the silver slipper was available. <laughs> that's, that's kind of how that worked. Uh, the, uh, you know, not every hotel on the strip was available, uh, for Hughes to buy, but the ones that were, he, he went after them. Now from episode number 71, Made in Vegas, host of the podcast Mobbed Up, this is Reed Redmond. Frank Collada is a former associate of the Chicago Outfit, which is the mob out of Chicago. Um, and sort of how the mob is structured is there are uh, made guys is kind of the, the term made famous in you know movies and TV shows. And those are guys who have pledged an oath to the mob and um, committed a murder on behalf of the mob usually is how you, you know, prove yourself to the mob. Uh, but then beyond that, there is this huge network of, you know, tipsters and associates and people that commit crimes on behalf or sort of in conjunction with the mob. Uh, and Frank is one of those guys. He was an associate of the Chicago outfit. Um, 
in sort of the mid 20th century. Uh, and he was a, a burglar is his specialty in Chicago. Um, and because he was, you know, doing these burglaries on mob turf, he would give a cut back to the Chicago outfit. Um, and he had a lot of friends in the Chicago outfits. Um, one of them being Tony Splatro. It's a pretty famous guy who ended up being the mob's uh, reputed enforcer in Las Vegas. And that's how he ended up coming out to Las Vegas and sort of working with the mob out here. And, and so the experience of spending time with a guy like Frank Culotta, I mean, I know he offers tours or he did offer tours for a long time where you could connect with him and he would take you around the city and, and it all wrapped up with, with pizza back at one of his pizza joints. Um, but I mean, for yourself, this is a totally different experience of, of getting in a car with this guy. And I mean, he, he took you around Vegas and showed you some pretty incredible things. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll give a spoiler here. So if anyone's about to go listen to the podcast and you don't want a spoiler, skip ahead a minute or so, but, <laughs> uh, he's killed people. <laughs> I, I got into a car with him knowing that he was a murderer, which is something I'd never done before in my life. <laughs> um, and one of the places that he took me to was uh, this residential home or this home in this residential neighborhood in Las Vegas where he had committed a murder. Um, and he told me how it happened while we were sitting outside of the home. Um, and that was surreal, to say the least. <laughs> wow. And and I mean, some of the other spots, he took you to places he showed you where various burglaries had been committed, various crimes had been committed, and, and homes and residences belonging to other mob-related figures. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, And it was a weird way for me, too, being pretty new to Las Vegas uh, to learn about the geography of the city, because it's a city that, you know, transforms itself every five years seemingly. Um, and so you don't see a lot of this history in the buildings or anything like that. And so him driving me around and being like, yeah, I did burglaries over there um, or there. He used to own a pizza joint. Um, and I don't think this made it into the podcast, but it was a pizza joint called the upper crust. Um, and he showed it to me and it, now it's a cricket wireless. Um, <laughs> he took me to the spot where uh, lefty Rosenthal's car blew up. Um, and that was like, a block from where I do my grocery shopping and I had no idea. So it was crazy to me to, to, you know, learn about this history of Las Vegas that you can't see anymore just going around on your own. And I mean, overall, what was, what was the experience like of that? I mean, I, I can't imagine the, the, as you say, I mean, the amount of history and, and what he's able to show you, but at the same time, you've got it and you must have it in the back of your head at the same time that this guy at one time was a was a bad dude. Yeah. Um, I think in the moment, the podcaster in me was like, I'm getting good tape. Like this is <laughs> these are good stories. And I am you know excited to see what we can do with this. Um, and I, I had obviously researched his story quite a bit before I ever met him. So it's not like any of the things he was telling me came as a surprise. Um, I knew the facts of what he had done. Mm-hmm. I think sort of the the most surreal thing was hearing it in his own words. Um, and sort of, I mean, these are stories he's, he's, most of them he's told before. And so he's used to telling them. So it was kind of weird for me where he's, he talks about murder, like you or I would talk about, you know, running an errand or taking out the trash. Um, and so to be in that space where, you know, he's just having a conversation with you, but your mind is just going crazy because you're like, oh my gosh, I'm in a car with a murderer. <laughs> um, it was surreal. 
and he is, you know, he's a friendly guy. Um, I talked to him a lot and, you know, it, we had enjoyable conversations when we were off mic, you know, we just kind of shoot the breeze, whatever else. So that played into it as well, where yeah, there's, there's layers to the guy. <laughs> <laughs> Was there ever, I mean, this may sound like a silly question at this point. Cause I mean, he's so far removed now, I guess from that world. Was there ever any concern for safety? Not, I, I wasn't too concerned about my personal safety. Um, I'm not convinced that he shouldn't be more concerned uh, that that maybe someone comes and and tries to to knock him out. I mean, there are the Chicago outfit is mostly wiped out, but as he told me, there are still probably a few young guys who would you know want to be want to say like I'm the guy who got Colada, and I think that's something he's probably just learned to live with and realize I, there's probably a long time, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but there's probably a long time where he figured he wouldn't live to be 81 and now he's 81. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I just figured, you know, the likelihood of something happening while I am with him in this two hour span, pretty slim chances. I liked my odds enough to go and do it. <laughs> right. uh, but he does have, you know, a guy that does security with him uh, when he does those tours or when he was with me, uh, that it's his driver slash security guard is what he told me. Mm-hmm. He told me he doesn't think he needs security. Um, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> And from episode number 78, A Place in the Sun, author of the book At the Sands, this is David Schwartz. Frank Sinatra steps in in October 1953. And it's really interesting because he was up for the part in On the Waterfront that Marlon Brando got and won an Oscar for. He was up for that. And of course, he was from Hoboken. He felt like it was his birthright to get the part. The producers disagreed hired Brando, the rest is history. Right. But, um, <laughs> and I don't think he ever forgave Brando for that, which is why if you watch Guys and Dolls, they didn't really get along on yeah. set. <laughs> he, he almost didn't do the Sands gig because he, and it was, again, this was reported on the papers. He said, well, you know, if I get called upon to do On the Waterfront, I'm going to skip this engagement. But it was a very carefully negotiated thing. Even before he played, he was negotiating to buy a piece of the Sands. And again, people have speculated that he was actually holding that interest for somebody else. Again, that's kind of, we could speculate about that all day. You know, on paper, he was the owner and he certainly acted like he owned the place. I'll put it that way. (laughs) He definitely acted like he owned the place. So when did the, the other members of the Rat Pack start showing up at the Sands? So it happened over several years. Uh, Dean Martin first shows up in 1955 with Jerry Lewis. So first as part of that duo, then after they split, he, I guess, in the custody, he kept the sands. I guess Jerry went somewhere else, but he <laughs> kept custody of the sands. So he became a fixture there. Sammy Davis Jr. starts playing in 1957 with the Will Maston Trio, which by that point, pretty much his uncle and father would come out for one song and the rest of the show would be all Sammy, but because he felt loyal to them, it was billed as the Will Maston Trio. So he starts in 57. 1960, when they're shooting Ocean's Eleven, Al Freeman, who was a publicity director of the Sands and really one of the heroes of Las Vegas publicity, gets the idea to, hey, let's put all three of them on stage together and we can bill them all together and have Joey Bishop and Peter Lawford show up too. That And Joey Bishop was sort of the ringmaster, I guess, you know, his job was to get everybody out to end the show on time to get the gamblers back out on the floor. 
because <laughs> you know Frank and Dean and Sammy would have gone all night, but his job was to vote. Okay, we're just shut it down, drop the curtain, get them out there. Mm-hmm. I recently did an episode about live music recorded in in Vegas, just because being Canadian, I can't get down to Vegas, and I'm really <laughs> missing that live entertainment. And one of the albums I came across, one of the live albums, was the Rat Pack live at the Sands, and listening to that it just you can just you feel like you're sitting in the copa room and it's just like that's vegas that's what it's all about yeah you know the humor is definitely a bit dated at this point yes (laughs) but yeah you can feel that you can really feel that um another recording i would suggest is sinatra at the sands with count basie from 66 it's really good not least of which, because at one point he says, anybody want a casino by the lake, which is when he was trying to sell his interest in the Calneva, which I talk about later on in the book. But that's another really good one because you have Count Basie and then Sinatra. So th- those are both re- two really good ones. You mentioned Sammy Davis Jr. Um, performing at the Sands and something that I did want to talk about that I thought was really interesting. The Sands did a lot for, at the time, racial equality among the performers in Las Vegas. I mean, at that point, Vegas was still quite heavily segregated and a lot of the African-American performers were not, they weren't allowed to to perform on the strip. They weren't even allowed to enter some of the, the strip hotels and casinos and having Sammy Davis Jr. There really kind of opened that up. It did. It's interesting. And one other thing that I found, I think it was in 1958, there was a news story about, Sammy Davis Jr. walking around the casino floor with Carl Cohen and Carl Cohen telling him, don't run over time, get them out here quicker. And I found that interesting because, and it was a story that pretty much, even though Al Freeman's name wasn't in the byline, I have the original release that he sent out and they ran it verbatim. So um, pretty much I found it interesting that they wanted to publicize that not only is Sammy Davis Jr. here, he's on the casino floor. Mm-hmm. which was a rarity in 1958 in Las Vegas. Most of the black performers, they did not let them mix with the guests on the floor afterwards, or they would extremely limit it, you know? Um, and it's interesting. If you watch the movie, uh, meet me in Las Vegas, which was set at the sands, Lena Horne is seen singing on stage, but not on the casino floor. Mm-hmm. Sammy Davis Jr.'s in that he's a cameo and he's literally just a voiceover. I guess they couldn't get a camera there that day, but it's interesting <laughs> that they present Lena Horne and she's wearing this beautiful gown and it's very elegant, but she's on stage and not in the casino. Three years later, that's different where Sammy Davis Jr. is publicized walking around the casino. As I say, it was really fascinating to kind of read into that and see how they, and if I'm not mistaken, I think Sammy Davis Jr. actually kind of stepped up and said like, listen, if you don't make these changes, I'm out of here. He was one of the people who did, you know, and definitely the local NAACP had probably the biggest part of that where they threatened to have a boycott on the strip and do a protest march in the strip. And that was why in March of 1960, casino owners said, we'll desegregate. But definitely Sammy helped, helped them get there for sure. I hope you've enjoyed this flashback to some of the conversations I've had on Las Vegas history. For the full episodes, head to the website at jeffdoesvegas.com or jump into the archives wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And that wraps up another episode of the show. 
If you've got feedback on this episode or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on a future episode of the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. You can also email me directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. 